Hi, Nithya. How are you doing? Really good under the circumstances. How are you doing, Denise? I'm good. I'm I'm safe enough and warm enough here in Ireland in my little house. I, I am all by myself, but I have a lot of hobbies. And so, it's a good okay. form of isolation during these times. Yeah. So um, we're here today to talk a little bit about uh, the inner source journey that Comcast has taken. And thank you so much for agreeing to do the talk. My pleasure. Really looking forward to talking to you today. So maybe you could start by telling me a little bit about Comcast in case there's somebody listening who doesn't actually know about your company, which is unlikely, but you never know. Absolutely. Uh, Comcast started out as a small company in Tupelo, Mississippi, in the United States in 1956. And, sorry, 1964. <laughs> it's 56 years old, and um, it has grown into... Um, one of the leading internet and network services and media services provider uh, globally, not just in the United States. Um, so we are about 56 years old, as I said. Uh, we have over 200,000 employees. We operate mainly in the United States, but we now have a footprint in Europe thanks to uh, the acquisition of Sky TV and then um, we also have content production through NBC and Universal Studios and DreamWorks, et cetera, which then takes us uh, worldwide from a content distribution perspective. We also have theme parks, the Universal theme parks, which is all over the world. So we are, I would say, a media and technology company, um, one of the leading ones in the world. Cool. Thank you for that. Now, um, I know from prior conversations you've had with me that um, Comcast was sort of an open source consumer first and then a contributor, and that that sort of set up their inner source work. So you want to tell that history a little bit? Absolutely. So I joined Comcast around 2017 from SanDisk Western Digital, which is a storage company. And what I discovered was that they were well on their way, Comcast was well on its way to being a software company and a consumer of open source. I think uh, around 2000 to 2005, when the company started pivoting to becoming a producer of its own software and using its you know, software that it created for products, network services, customer equipment, it was leveraging a lot of open source software. And uh, the company had also released uh, two or three major projects back into the open source, which it had created, such as the set-top box software, for example, has been released to create a standard set-top box software across the industry, and it's called the RDK project. And the company had also released uh, a content distribution network project called uh, Apache Traffic Control, and by that, you, you can surmise that it's now hosted at Apache as a first-class uh, project. So I was very proud to see that uh, it already had a thriving consumption and contribution culture. What was needed, of course, was a, a more uh, direction and intent, if you will, behind the open source community engagement. Yeah, they, I remember when you were... Um when you were interviewing for that job and I was thinking that they were pretty lucky to get you because you have the missing piece, but also people like us, we like to take on 
companies that, you know, are already showing some promise. And so they had a pretty good profile too. So, so um, now you were at the first InterSource Summit in 2015 while you were still at SanDisk. Do you have any memories of that? I do. I do. I remember you teaching us how to juggle. <laughs> and I remember the excitement about starting uh, this new movement uh, called InterSource and how many people you had from all over the world attending the summit. Yeah, it was it was a, it was a really good beginning. It was also kind of terrifying just between you and me because, you know, I was sort of laying my career on the line saying that this was going to be the next thing. And um, it it's I'm really gratified with the way that it's been, you know, rolling out. I, it's not so fast that we can't keep up with it, but it's definitely a steady growth. And at this point, Intersource Commons, of course, has, you know, pretty broad uh, membership from around the, the tech industry, but also starting to get into, you know, any company that produces software could really use this advice. So, um, so thank you for joining that first one. Um, and I know that you were a sponsor of the last North American event in Baltimore, and I believe you're going to speak uh, shortly here in Spain as well. Absolutely. Well, not in Spain. None of us will be in Spain. We'll all be virtual, <laughs> but it's meant to be the Spanish uh, European summit for this year. Yes, I'm so looking forward to that. And I was indeed looking forward to being there in person and really listening to uh, the progress that you have created, uh, Denise, and the momentum you've created in the inner source journey. Yeah, make no mistake, it's not me. It's the, it's the community. It's a really good community. And I, I just try to keep up with them. Uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, it's, it's, uh, we're going to try some new things at that event. Specifically, we're going we're gonna to try for more interactivity than a lot of these virtual events are enjoying because we think that's what makes it sticky when you come to a, an InterSource Summit in person. The hallway track is almost the most important part. So, so we're going to see if we can get some of that feel. Anyway. I'm really, really glad that you're coming to it, and I hope you'll stick around and enjoy some of what some of our experiments in uh, in making it more interesting. I look um, forward to it. Yeah. In the meantime, I know that uh, Comcast had already started an OSPO before you joined, but they recruited you to help them focus those activities. Um, you want to talk about how that led to InterSource? Absolutely. So, uh, slight correction. I think there were some processes in place, such as the Open Source Advisory Council, which approved contributions made back into the community, but there was no formal OSPO or a focus center of excellence, if you will. And you know how important it is, you and I both realize, to have an executive sponsor for this activity, someone who believes in it. And I was very lucky to have uh, Matt Zalesko, who's our CTO, and John Moore, who's my boss, uh, both be big champions of open source and both are engineers themselves. And so we started the 2017 OSPO office with great deal of sponsorship from the two of them. And um, as we started rolling out, you know, more uh, coordination with external communities that we worked with and, you know, memberships into foundations and actually communicating and evangelizing what we were doing and creating uh, communities inside the company, we realized uh, that we could also start 
working on changing the collaborative culture of projects inside the company. And I'll tell you a little more uh, later about how the first project in InnerSource got started at Comcast. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, we should maybe say for people who don't know, because we're, we're throwing around um, acronyms here, and OSPO is an open source program office. And if you want to learn more about how to set up an OSPO in your organization to handle open source things, and some OSPOs also handle inner source things, uh, you will do well to go um, look up the to-do group, which you can find. Um, they have web pages, and they're part of the Linux Foundation now. And that is a group of people who run open source program offices or OSPOs in their own companies, and they're meeting to share um, best practices and, and document what they do. And you're a big part of that, Nithya. <laughs> I, I am. And I, and I love that community because all of them, in the true spirit of open source, really want to share, want to mentor. And in how we set up our open source program offices, there are no real secrets or uh, you know, trade secrets, et cetera. It's, it's things that, uh, you know, tools and practices and processes and staffing and budgets, et cetera, which we readily share with each other. Yeah, it's a great community. I'm, I'm really glad that the Linux Foundation picked it up because it was sort of floating for a while there, but it's really gotten some focus now, which is great to see. Okay, so... Um, so you set up this OSPO, and I think that uh, you have kind of a motto, the three C's, which I sort of really like. <laughs> I started with six C's and then um, uh, kind of boiled it down to three. Um, so we, our OSPO is a, really a small but mighty organization is what I call it. Uh, we are about six of us, and... Um, we focus on compliance uh, across the company. Uh, we even advise, you know, M&A and the Comcast Ventures team. Um, we are often kind of the expert that um, NBC Universal may come to or Sky can come to and ask us questions because we are the biggest OSPO in the bigger Comcast. And so compliance is a big piece of what we do. The second one is community, so both building community inside the company as well as relationships with the communities outside the company that we collaborate with, that we work with, including managing you know, relationships with foundations and other organizations. And really the third one is uh, communication. Uh, we do a tremendous amount of communication both inside and outside the company, whether it's public speaking and evangelizing what we do or a project that we believe in uh, or inside the company uh, to create an ambassador program, for example. It's the group of uh, um, believers and experts in open source across the company that we work very closely with or to leadership uh, to communicate the benefits of open source or uh, you know, what we're doing in open source. Um, these are the three big, big activities that we're involved in. Great. So you, you're, you already said that your air cover was uh, senior executives like Matt Celesco and your, and your direct boss, but it sounds like you're also building, uh, using the tools to build a grassroots um, program so that you meet in the middle somewhere. Would you say that's fair? That's absolutely fair. 
Um, I feel that the developers in the company were already big supporters of open source. Uh, they wanted uh, a much more frictionless open source culture inside the company. They wanted to have kind of a stated uh you know, function that we as a company supported and believed in open source. That's a that's a huge talent draw for for a company like us. That that we have a great development environment which supports open source. So that was there. But then we needed to build a network of uh, open source experts across the company because you know we are six people and we cannot support. 9,000 developers across the world. And so we rely on these 59 ambassadors, if you will, who amplify and who are our ears and eyes on the ground in Japan or in our Chennai office in India or in Silicon Valley. And we work very closely with them to uh, get the word across and to act as kind of the resource on the ground uh, locally. Right. Yeah, that's I, in my experience, it's a really good um, idea to to try to meet in the middle because the the hardest bit is almost always the, the sort of middle management part of the company. And it's it stands to reason they sort of exist to uh, make sure that things don't change so radically that, you know, the boat tips over. And so um, they tend to be a little more skeptical of change and a little more careful. And so if you have people from both above and below giving them, you know, interest in something, it's, it's more compelling. It, they have to at least pay attention to it. So. Exactly right. We do involve the managers. Um, if they want to contribute back to open source, they have to have their manager's approval um, but we want to make sure that that they understand that this is uh, part of the fabric of how we develop software in the company. Sure. Just out of just as this is a little bit of a sideline, but um, I'm curious because we've been thinking about this. I think you know that we created some online trainings with O'Reilly that are sort of generic role trainings for the the, the big roles that shift in InnerSource. Um, so what's it like to be a contributor? What's it like to be a trusted committer? What's it like to be a product owner in the new way of doing things, mm -hmm. right? And um, we we did that partly because, to, partly to provide education so there'd be less pushback from the middle managers. Often people are um, upset because they just don't know and unknowns are something to, to guard against, right? But... Um, I'm curious if you have developed ways of, of talking about this at the different levels of the company. Um, it's been easy to talk at the senior executive level um, because our technology leaders get it. Uh, the middle manager level, I've, I've started developing um, more training and communication around that, more towards the fact that, um, you know, around the company principles, we want to respect licenses and that they need to spend time to uh, create their bill of materials and scan the code and, you know, things of that nature. Uh, we've also spent some time on teaching them about technical debt and why they need to stay connected to the communities 
that they work with or they consume and why they need to make sure that uh, they're not, you know, creating forks or carrying all of these patches forward with them. And then with inner source, what I'm most excited about is that it starts telling them how to structure the project uh, such that they can create, you know, a lot of collaboration. But these are also best practices in my mind from a software development perspective. So to me, inner source will help us help them do better software development. Oh, yeah, I'm right, right there with you. I mean, the whole reason I started evangelizing it, the first reason was because it's just a better way to do engineering. Indeed. And I'm really worried that the vast majority of developers today still don't get to do open source style development, which is a pity because we're taking a quality hit because of that. And we're also um, not using our resources very wisely. It's not like we have enough engineers, you know? <laughs> exactly. The- and, and, you know, in a large company, you'll find um, culturally we are very autonomous because we want everyone to move fast uh, towards serving customers but uh, fast does not mean that you don't pause and see if you can leverage, you know, work that's already been done or use, uh, you know, something that's working well in the company. So I, I'm, I'm very excited about, you know, moving InnerSource much more uh, in the company. Yeah, me too. I, I think it's, it's just, I mean, it makes it better for the new, new engineers that you hire fresh out of school. And um, because they expect more transparency, like they, they actually find it very depressing when they learn how old fashioned engineering really works, you know, and, and so there's that, but also you just get so many benefits, um, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, so now on your journey, how did you drive participation and engagement? So how did you encourage people at the outset and how did you get started? You, you told us earlier, you'd tell us about that first experiment. Yeah, yeah. So what happened was there was a project called Vinyl DNS, V-I-N-Y-L-D-N-S, which is DNS as a service. And the group that I sit in um, is called Software Strategy and Transformation. And one of our jobs is to find common services that we can host and offer for the company at large so that everyone is not, you know, recreating a service that is a common service. And so Vinyl DNS was one of those common services and it was being consumed by many parts of the company. But um, the, the consumers or the users were bottlenecked, if you will, by a small group of developers and maintainers who were maintaining this project. And the, the team was really struggling to support you know, all of the users. And, and so we had a chat with them and we said, what if your users could become contributors to your project? What if your users could help themselves and not be you know, dependent upon you? And they said, that sounds easy or that sounds good. We'd like to do that. And um, they also had ambitions of open sourcing this project. So we thought we'd first help them structure the project inside the company uh, for collaboration, for building community, and then that would help us kind of stage it for good open sourcing, uh, and so it would be ready to handle um, building a community outside the company because they knew how to build a community inside the company. So that's how we got started with Vinyl DNS. Cool. 
All right. And that, I guess it must've been successful. Indeed. And, and, um, you know, the beauty of it was, um, like you said, it, it really taught the team, uh, the benefit of good practices, software development practices, whether it's making the product more modular or publishing good documentation or, um, you know, having regular roadmap and communication with their users uh, or putting training in place so that the users could start, you know, filing issues and working on issues. Um, it, it was um, it was quite successful. And then we went on to open source final DNS. And now they have a pretty vibrant community of non-Comcast uh, developers who are contributing to it, as well as Comcasters. That is fabulous news. It's one of the main criticisms that we suffer out in the FOSS world is that InnerSource is somehow going to drain energy away from open source. And of course, I've had exactly the opposite experience. I think that if anything, it's going to teach companies uh, how to be better open source contributors and maybe give some, some comfort to some companies that are you know holding off right now on becoming open source contributors because they're afraid they're going to get it wrong. In fact, it's the opposite to me. It's uh, it's a staging ground. If, if you indeed are going to open source the project, it's a great way to first try out all of the mechanics of building an open source project inside the company. Uh, and then when you go out, you're ready. Yep, that's what we see. Okay, so you had one team going. How did you get to critical mass after that? So what happened after that was um, we did some webinars and educational series. Uh, two of, uh, Sheila Sebi in my team um, did a lot of initial ground uh, swell building. She did a number of webinars, a number of uh, communications around a vinyl DNS. We, we do an open source day twice a year and we showcase a lot of success stories and you know things that are working well in open source inside and outside the company. And um, that sparked a lot of interest in uh, various teams across the company and they would come to us and they'd say, hey, uh, does this look like an inner source candidate? You know, this is the business challenge we're struggling with. And do you think, you know, we could work with you to help us structure it as an inner source project? I'll give you an example. There was a project called Helio. And there were two teams in two different geographic locations who had created similar projects. And um, the architect of the organization was told to you know, converge on one project and have both organizations working on one project. And there were these political dynamics. He was concerned about which project to choose, whether uh, people would, you know, get behind one project. And, and it, lo and behold, he set up one of the projects as an inner source project and empowered the other group to be able to contribute their variations to the project. And so everyone felt a sense of ownership, a sense of involvement, and Helio took off and it's been open sourced as well. And since then, Sheila and now Brittany Istanis, who's also been helping her, has uh, they've done about 15 consultations, 15 setups across the company uh, in various stages of inner source. 
Cool. Well, that's really, that's, that's good. And, and um, given that you have that broader reach now, um, I bet you're looking harder at scaling. Is that true? That's exactly right. So <laughs> it had grown organically, as you can imagine, with Sheila starting out um, working with the Vinyl DNS team in about 2018, 2019. And then towards the middle of last year, uh, other folks in the organization, my boss and my peer groups, um, all started getting very interested in inner source and felt that it would both help the software development culture, but it would also help a certain uh, isolated platforms in the group, in the company, that really needed to open up and um, you know, enable others to, in a faster manner, um, add applications, add you know, new services to it. Um, so we felt that uh, InnerSource was the way to do it. And so this year, our goal is to formally productize InnerSource, uh, meaning, you know, codify all of our practices that, have, that we have learned over the 15 engagements we've done and to roll it out much more systematically and aggressively and launch it also this year. So I'm super excited. Um, there's one more thing I wanted to say. We have a software um, you know, strategy that, that we've adopted across the company to become a world-class software company. And there are 15 elements to it, and we are working on adding InnerSource as the 16th element that makes an organization a world-class organization. And frankly, the other thing that we're doing to become more world-class in doing InnerSource, uh, Denise, is joining the InnerSource Commons in the sense that we are working closely with people in the InnerSource Commons, like Petergia, like yourself, and I'm looking forward to learning more and contributing also. Yeah, I have some ideas for you on that at the end of this talk, because I've been thinking about it since we spoke on Friday. So... Um... Great. It's such a good story. I will tell you um, that figuring out how to scale is the thing that catches most teams that do successful first implementations of InterSource because it usually happens engineer to engineer and or engineering organization to engineering organization. But to be really successful, InterSource has to infiltrate the whole company. And I think I've, I've I've told this story before uh, on this podcast, but one of the things that happened at PayPal was um, we started looking for ways that other parts of the company could still be doing intersource. So for instance, the bus schedules, um, you know, every, all the big companies in Silicon Valley run those buses up to San Francisco because that's oh, yeah. where everybody wants to live. And, um, and it's, it's, it's kind of terrible, but it's also kind of great because when you get on the bus, there's Wi-Fi and you get to start to work. So if it takes an hour to get to the office, you've already put an hour in, you know, and likewise on the way home. And um, there's a little community that grows up around those bus routes. But the people who actually did the scheduling for the buses all lived in San Jose and never went to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't really know what they were doing when they you know, were trying to describe to new people where the, where the bus stops were and that kind of thing. So letting the actual writers 
make those modifications, you know, putting it in GitHub and accepting pull requests <laughs> was like a brilliant thing. But it also gave the admin some exposure to Intersource. So looking for ways for the whole company to figure it out. And then we, we are now officially at Intersource Commons telling people that as soon as their first Intersource experiment is deemed successful, they should start thinking about scaling even if that's just ex, uh, exploring the communications channels and making sure that you have a plan for how you're going to go wide with the information. And one of the reasons is as soon as it shows up on somebody's business plan, especially if it's at the CTO level, all of a sudden that, that term will cascade through all the business plans. Everybody will have it on their, on their sheet, but most of them won't really know what it is. And shortly after that, they start hating it, but they've still never done it. Yeah. Right. So, so we created an in, introduction um, video that uh, we did one internal to PayPal, and then we did it again for O'Reilly for exactly this reason, because which we call brand dilution. When when the, what intersource means is not clearly understood across the organization, even if they're not all expected to practice it yet, you start building antibodies against it, just like any change initiative, right? And in tech, people are so tired of change initiatives. There's a real fatigue and a real skepticism every time one starts. So you have to think carefully about how you're going to talk about it and what promises you're going to make and you know what expectations you're going to derive and how you offset fear. All That's that stuff, you got to think it through. Uh, what, what's really wonderful about how we've been rolling out elements of the software strategy is that we are trying to do all of what you talk about. We've been partnering with change management uh, experts in the company, with HR from a, uh, a rewards perspective and incentives perspective, with, um, you know, with project managers and with metrics, you know, how do we measure the impact? Um, and with, of course, leadership. So it's, you're absolutely correct. It has to be rolled out correctly and it has to be, uh, a company-wide initiative for it to really succeed. Yeah, well, it, it just offers so many benefits that it's worth doing all the, all the way around. Get, you know, we know this from open source. Participation is ownership. If part of what companies are trying to do is create, you know, loyalty and get the very best out of their employees, giving them a little ownership uh, in, in terms of the quality of experience that people have working in the company, the better yeah, for everybody. Absolutely. Okay, so I know from when we talked before that you're just getting around to figuring out metrics. And I get that because um, we actually also started advocating not going very deep into metrics until you've proven to yourself that it works. So initially just focus on whatever the problem is that you're trying to solve. <laughs> And maybe do some measurement around that, but don't get attached to those measurements because uh, as you scale it out, you may find that, you know, first of all, you are what you measure. So um, the canonical uh, advice there is if what you're measuring is, uh, or if what you're experiencing in your inner source project is people holding onto their code too long because they're nervous about somebody else reading it, so they they polish it, they make sure it's as complete as possible before they throw it over the wall for review. But if it's a 30,000 line patch, it's going to take a while to review it. 
So what we advocate, of course, is you know more release, more frequent, smaller releases of code into the process until you've got everything you need to get whatever you're trying to get done done. Uh, just from a human perspective, you know, it's nice to it's nice to share early and often, but it's a hard thing to learn, right? So one of the ways that you can game that is you can announce to everybody that you're going to start measuring number of pull requests, and they will get smaller. Right? Yes, <laughs> but you don't. Ne- but you don't necessarily want to do that forever, right? So, figuring out how to incent people and what's working and what isn't and what to measure really shouldn't happen first, in my opinion. What do you think? Well, we we wanted to set up two types of metrics. Um, one was to gauge, um, you know, how many projects we're adopting in our source, right? Just for our own OSPO edification. And then also to see what level of adherence they had to good practices. Um, For instance, we have a checklist of items that we suggest that they do to set up a good open source practice, uh, sorry, an inner source practice. And so to me, the completeness, uh, the maturity with which they adopt that is, is something I, w- I would like to measure. Also, how many projects in the company are using InnerSource. And then we did want to take a look at uh, pull requests, both um, you know, from outside, but also if you are participating in another project, just to, to your point, yes, it, it can be. Uh, a bad measure down the road, but we wanted to kind of show that, you know, we had gone from zero to uh, more than zero, if you will. People are actually starting to get pull requests from outside of their team. They're getting external contributors. And uh, and then, you know, frankly, uh, I wanted to also look at what's the time to, uh, you know, resolving issues um, to reviewing pull requests coming in from outside of the team just to see if the right behaviors were happening uh, inside the team. Yeah, well, that, that metric, that last one, which we call the velocity metric, is the most sought-after one. Um, I've been involving academics in this since the very beginning, and that is the thing that I want them to answer first, uh, you know, conclusively through research, which is, of course, taking a while, but um, we are looking for companies that are interested in, in partnering with university researchers to get to the bottom of that. But basically, this is the idea. Changing the way you work, there's always a hit in terms of productivity, at least temporarily, while everybody learns the new way to do things. And in the case of InnerSource, if you're switching for the first time to real code review, I mean, not rubber stamp code review, but real code review, because the person accepting that pull request into their code base is going to care a lot about whether it's going to break something, right? So they're going to do a better job of reading it than they would if it was a senior engineer that's been on the project forever. Mm -hmm. That's just human nature, right? Um, Doing real code review gives you an opportunity to to learn a bunch of stuff, (laughs) right, about... um, a, a, to lay down a bunch of de facto documentation if you if you collect and archive that advice so that somebody else in the company later on who needs to do something similar against that code base can be directed to read that set of advice before they start submitting pull requests and they will have a shorter amount of time before their code is deemed mergeable 
And that's the open source effect, one of them, right? So figuring out how to get companies to that place where um, things are going actually faster because of the way that they're working, even though the first time you explain something, it takes a little bit longer. It's, it's less painful than a document sprint by quite a bit, right? Yes. And, and um, so we know that there's a velocity increase. All of us that have practiced this have seen that. But we have not yet got, you know, well-researched, quantifiable data that is irrefutable. <laughs> and that's something we're looking for. So you can let me know after this if, that, if you'd be interested in getting involved in that effort. Absolutely. And, and, and the reason also for collecting metrics in my mind is um, to measure the impact, right, to the positive impact, to your point. Does velocity increase? Does uh, you know, um, the quality of code increase, does the mentoring and onboarding improve? And that allows us then to amplify the success uh, to the rest of the company and thereby hopefully, uh, you know, encourage more teams to get involved. So to me, and, and to measure the success and to kind of uh, really tweak the, the process to see if any changes are needed uh, based on what we learn from a metrics perspective. Yeah, exactly. And it, I mean, it's definitely useful for all that stuff. And, you know, when we did that first book, uh, Getting Started with Intersource, which is the most downloaded non-code asset on GitHub now. Nice. <laughs> partly because partly they print it out and give it to people, right? Um, but when we, when we did that booklet, which was the one that we did when we announced what Intersource, the, you know, at, at OSCON, I stood up and did a keynote about Intersource and, and uh, PayPal's commitment to trying it out. We used that to describe our first experiment. And we did lay down some metrics or some, some outcomes. And one of them was um, they were trying to fix the problem where 65% of their time in every sprint was spent dealing with um, executive escalations. And that's an that's a sign that your engineering organization is broken if it takes a re an executive escalation to get a feature request fulfilled, right? So, um, so anyway, they wanted more of their own time back, and they thought letting people submit submit to them would would be more efficient. And that sounds like kind of where you guys started too on, on the final DNS project. Yes, but. But so we know that we knocked that number down because they kept track because that was the thing they were trying to get rid of, right? Um, we, we said in the book 5%, but actually they got down to something like virtually 0% um, escalations when they had this other way for people to fix their own problems. So that was a big win. But the one that we, that we published that people were surprised about and that we knew exactly was the quality bump that we got from from instituting real code review that manager of that of that project when i explained to him how apache works and i spent you know a day with him explaining all the ins and outs of how it would work um he said to me uh can i run all of my normal workers through this trusted committer for code review because he's not going to have much to do if nobody's submitting pull requests. And, and I said, yeah, of course you can do that. And he said, oh, thank God. Huh. I, I said, why, why did you say that? He said, well, the truth is when you hire an employee, an engineering employee in this company, you give them code access and you give them the right to submit and merge patches. And you do that because they're engineers and that's why you hired them. But 
they are all at different levels of ability in, in understanding of the code base. And, you know, we know that we introduce bugs into the system. Now, this, this piece of software had 90% of the traffic mm. that, uh, of, of PayPal's, you know, revenue traffic going through it. It was the checkout stack. And the reason they knew exactly how much they were costing the company in terms of quality was because half of PayPal's employees are customer service people because it's a bank and people want to be able to talk to their money. That's right. Um, and when, if you're in the merchant program, when something falls over, like at Christmas time, if for a little while you couldn't use PayPal, your, your customers couldn't use PayPal, that would cost you money. So PayPal makes those merchants whole. They actually pay for lost opportunity if in the rare event that that happens. So they know exactly what a bug costs. Mm. And a 25% bump is huge in a really central silo like that. So, um, so anyway, yeah, metrics can be used to make a compelling case that will get people excited as well. Um, okay, so tell me about the the biggest challenge that you had to overcome. I, I think the biggest challenges um, definitely are that each team is so focused on getting its product out quickly to market. We are a very autonomous company. We are very distributed. We are large. And uh, everyone has great deal of freedom to choose projects that they use or products that they use. And yet we are a very interconnected and interdependent company, but um, <clears throat> because everybody's moving so fast, it was hard for people to stop and, and say, hey, is there a project uh, in the company that I should be using to do this? Or is there a better way to kind of uh, create interoperability or API across, you know, my project and this project to make this happen? Um, and and that's, that's, you know, one of the hard things is uh, people are incented often to get their work done fast and you're not incented or you are discouraged from contributing to something outside of your team because it's perceived that you're diminishing the work that you're doing for your own team. And so overcoming some of those obstacles uh, have been uh, some of the challenges. Yeah, that's pretty common. And that's part of why you want to know what that velocity number could be so that you can convince them you know, that it's only a temporary pain, right? Precisely. And, and frankly, uh, I'm sure many companies struggle with this. The discoverability is a, is a big challenge, you know. Um, how do you search inside a company for who's working on something similar? Or uh, it, there's no, quote, stack overflow, if you will, inside a company where you can say, hey, I'm trying to do this and I'm looking for this. Is there someone who's working on this? And creating a little more transparency, creating more discoverability, getting developers to open up their repos so that others can contribute to it. These are all cultural challenges that um, I'm sure many people deal with. Yeah, we have some advice about that that I'd be happy to share with you um, based on the best practices, which, which um, you know, is, is uh, we'll talk about that in, again in a minute because I have it on the list of things to talk about. But let's talk about the notab most notable benefits You've said them earlier, but I'm just, you know, just wrap them up in a nice little bow for me. 
I think, um, you know, in the case of Wino DNS, for example, um, just practicing the um, practices or the best practices of open source was tremendously helpful for the team before they went to open source because that helped them go really fast in terms of uh, creating a community. But more than that, they were excited to see some of their uh, downstream users actually get involved and you know expand the the use cases and the scope of the project because they were users. They knew you know what kinds of things needed to happen. Um, we found that the documentation got better because you now needed to enable you know a team of people outside that core team that needed to work with the project, and so the documentation got really so much better. We found that the code quality got better. There was more testing. There was more review. To your point earlier, code review was you know better. And with some of the other projects that we're working on, uh, we found that they realized that if they made the project more modular and not so monolithic, then they can enable certain groups to start contributing to certain modules and keep certain pieces you know, to themselves. Because one of the big concerns was, hey, I don't want, uh, this is so crucial to our network, I don't want everyone touching this. And so by making it modular, they could decide which pieces were okay for users and contributors to touch and which pieces weren't. So I think it, it, it really had lots and lots of um, collateral benefits, um, both onboarding teams, um, you know, bringing new developers on board. There was this team which had a lot of uh, uh, attrition and uh, it was a very complicated piece of code. So they started seeing that they could bring new developers on board faster because they had put good practices in place. So I think there's, we've seen a lot of different benefits uh, across the 15 projects that we've been consulting with. That's fabulous to hear. It's, it just does my heart good. I mean, I, I know that this will be true for every company that adopts Intersource with some seriousness and, and will to change. So yay that. Yes. Uh, and it's going to make it easier for us to hire too, because now you have to, every new employee has to be... Um, you know, inoculated with the intersource bug. Like at PayPal, we got into um, doing a presentation at the uh, new hiring training days every single time, every single Monday. <laughs> so what we, we used to draw straws. Who's doing it this week? You know, but we had a pre-canned presentation that we did just to get them used to the idea um, as early as we could. So that's very okay. Yeah. Yeah, well, so that this leads me to the the question about um, Intersource Commons. So um, Intersource Commons, again, is a, is a corporation uh, freestanding that has a filed, in fact, we did it this week, for 501c3 status and um, in the U.S. And there are already several chapters uh, outside the U.S. that are doing uh, language translations to try to grow this movement in other countries where people are interested. So we're getting uh, a lot of traction for Intersource Commons. It's run very much like Apache, although the tooling is slightly different. We use GitHub and we use Slack. Uh, and we do also have uh, newly a mailman set up for um, you know, 
things that need to be emails. But um, we are going to run it on a membership basis as with Apache. So distinguished contribution will eventually get you a nomination as a member and members are um, appointed for life. Although you can choose to go emeritus if your life moves on and you don't, you know, it's not your primary concern anymore, but you can always come back once you've, once you've been one of us, you're always one of us. And uh, it's an individual thing. It's not a company thing, you know, as in, I, I will be a member of Intersource Commons. Uh, I was at PayPal and I am now at Nearform and I will be however long I choose to be involved in Intersource Commons. So there's that. Um, we just recently started having, uh, well, we incorporated and we, we started creating some leadership around um, making sure that there are people seeing to things like uh, affiliate membership or sponsorship opportunities. Um, but we also, some of what you've been talking about is, um, will fit very nicely in what we call our pattern language community. So I started talking about pattern languages. I think you probably heard it in 2015 when I was first talking about this. The idea there is, this is, when you explain to somebody how to do open source, it's relatively straightforward because um, there's kind of only one right way to do it. I mean, there are variations, but the, the pattern is pretty clear, you know, be transparent, um, do code review, uh, save, your, save your code review as documentation. You know, there's a few things like that that are pretty straightforward. But in Intersource, wh what you need to fix depends on the state of the company when they start thinking about it. And so that means it's a little bit more complicated to figure out which of the advice that we give about Intersource will fit your organization. And so we decided that maybe if we started um, talking about them in the abstract as possible mitigations for existing situation, then people could flip through a pattern book at some point in the future and you know, match their problems to possible mitigations and decide which ones to choose. And you guys have some interesting mitigations that you came up with already, like the we already have the one where you create a collaborative group, um, which you might call a guild or you might call, um, you know, other things, <laughs> there are other names for it. But you guys, you in, in talking today, you've said some other things that I think would be super useful um, for other people to realize they can try as, as, you know, possible pieces of the puzzle to, to move people in the right direction. So I think that would be a great place for Comcast to show up. Yes, yes. Um, I think it's the codification of uh, practices and um, we've started doing um, a checklist, if you will, of what projects would be a good fit and, you know, what are some of the um, infrastructure governance and other elements they need to have in place in order to practice good open source, uh, sorry, inner source and we are also partnering with our sister organization, which is the Strategic Architecture Group, um, because we can only go so deep. We are more community um, and communication experts as opposed to technology experts. And so our architecture team can actually come in and help you with how should the project be structured? How do good code reviews happen? Um, how do good documentation happen and things of that sort. And we are partnering with security 
to make sure that is this a good fit? Um, because not all projects inside the company are good fits for opening up to the rest of the the company. Uh, and so, so there and and the other partnership which has been very helpful is uh, working with our GitHub Enterprise team. That's our chosen collaboration tool inside the company, and it's nice to work with the IT team which supports that to make sure that the right knobs and the tags are there to uh, track and you know enable inner source in the company. Well, as you know, I mean, GitHub is a great tool and there are companies that use all the modern code management tools, but GitHub is sort of the leader. Um, and, but they're still not a turnkey solution for Intersource. So one of the things the Intersource Commons is doing is trying to help GitHub understand which pieces are missing or what, you know, what could happen to make it a full turnkey solution. And, and um, when members come up with a good implementation of something, uh, open sourcing that so that other people can try it and, and frankly GitHub can try it and see if it could be made to work more broadly um, is another way that we would really welcome Comcast participation. That's a very good idea, uh, Denise, and um, we enjoy working closely with GitHub and uh, um, those are some of the things that we'll keep in mind. Uh, Brittany Estanis, who's been running with this, um, as well as Sheila Sebi, um, will get more and more involved in Inner Source Commons. And my hope is that uh, as we learn, uh, we are able to share more of these and codify some of this so that uh, the world at large can continue to uh, you know, move forward from uh, at-scale experiences that we have. That's great news. Thank you so much for that, Nithya. It's, um, as you know, it's sort of my dream that this become a regular practice uh, in the future because I think it can only help engineering. And if it's true that software is eating the world, then we should try to make it the best software we can. Exactly. So, great. Well, I think we're just about out of time. Um, did you have any other questions that you wanted to lob at me or are we good? I think we're good. Uh, I think we've covered a lot of ground and I truly appreciate the opportunity to share uh, our story and, and also to thank you for uh, creating a science and, and a focus around inner source uh, because it is a different animal than open source, even though it leverages a lot of um, the benefits of open source. Well, um, thanks. It's, it's been, uh, you know, I, in a way, I'm just continuing work that, that Tim O'Reilly and Brian Bellendorf started. We always stand on the shoulders of somebody. And um, if I hadn't worked so closely with Brian and Tim in those early days, I wouldn't have known that this was the direction that, you know, my company needed to go. And, and then to the insight that most companies were going to need to go this way um, was God-given, <laughs> but it's it's a great, I'm, I'm so happy that it's working out the way it is, and thank you again for sending your folks to us and for agreeing to speak with us and, and uh, all of that stuff, and so um, if people listening to this podcast are interested to hear more, there is an Intersource Summit happening in Europe virtually, uh, which means that you can join from anywhere, but it's sort of arranged around the European time zone. Uh, and we'd love to have you. 
um, there's a registration on the intersourcecommons.org website, and that's just so we can choose the right tools so that we don't fall over in the middle of the day because too many people are showing up or overbuild and not enough people show up. So um, get on over to intersourcecommons.org and, and read about the summit and uh, sign up and listen to some or all of it if you can. And Mithya, I hope that you'll stick around for as much of it as uh, you have time for because I really want feedback on how well we're doing at approximating a hallway track virtually. I plan to do that. And, and I'm super excited that you have an opportunity or you are able to allow uh, the hallway track in a virtual setting. I think that's brilliant. Well, we made some hard choices. We, we cut down the size of the, of the event from three full days of, of face-to-face involvement you know, including dinners and things, to um, two three-hour sessions. And um, some of it we're going to do, uh, like the we have a planned first members meeting, which we were going to do at the conference, but we'll now do it separately and not during the, not during the online conference because you need too much context to understand what we're doing. But um, the, we really were pleased that you agreed to, uh, to come on. And the idea of pre-recording the sessions is about um, allowing us to focus on interactivity while the session is happening and immediately after it's happening. Um, so you'll see, I mean, Daniel will be in charge, uh, in uh, touch about changes to the way that it go, comes together to try to promote optimal opportunities for conversation. That sounds fun. Thank you. Great. Oh, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you again soon, I hope. I hope so, too. And uh, till then, we all need to stay safe, isolated, socially distanced. And um, hopefully the world will move beyond this and we're all able to see each other again and share a meal together again. I look forward to that. Good, good thing that open source trained us for this, though, huh? Yes, indeed. <laughs> it comes in. Yeah, handy. it doesn't feel strange to me at all. It really doesn't. Alrighty, I think we can go now. Um, so uh, I will be talking to you again soon. Thank you, Denise, for the opportunity, and have a great day. Thank you.